0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Tom in here from Tom's Big Spiders. I'm going to try to fit a podcast in this morning before my neighbor, who um, just received basically every year this happens, and it hasn't become a real issue till this year, but every year my neighbor gets a bunch of logs delivered to his driveway for firewood. We're talking huge, probably you know, 15, 20-foot logs dropped off, stacked up in his driveway, which is great, and obviously you know, folks have wood stoves or whatever, that's something you can do, and Unfortunately, our houses are very close together and it leads to <laughs> what amounts to several days on end of just incessant chainsawing. So in my newest video, you, if anybody's seen it in the beginning, I, I had my hands in my temples. Well, that was a good minute because I went to record the opening to the video and he revved the chainsaw up. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me because what happens is it starts around 8 o'clock in the morning. And the other night, it went to almost nine o'clock at night. He put on the floodlights in his uh, driveway. We were trying to watch the new Spider Man movie came out on digital, and we're all excited about it. And it was just like the incessant in the background. So today, um, I'm hoping to get this in before he starts up again because he has a wood splitter out there now, which runs and rather loudly, and I'm afraid that's going to be in the background. So we'll see how this one goes. Hopefully, I do have a a thing on this program that allows me to edit out some of the background noise, and it's been an absolute godsend, especially when I upgraded my microphone, because this thing tends to pick up some stuff behind me as well, so that might be getting some some really good use today, so anyway, to kick this one off before we get started, um, I wanted to just update people on the beginner species video, I'm almost done with the script, it's, it's taken me quite a bit of time, I think now it's around 5,000 words or so, but, uh, and then, as what usually happens when I'm doing my videos, and this this is why I don't like with the script sometimes is I, I come up with an idea. So for these, all I wanted to basically do was just touch on the species, you know, all right, here coming in. Number seven is the blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to give it away because I figured it'll be a cool reveal when it finally comes out. But uh, one of the things I usually run into when I'm doing my videos is I want, I constantly thinking of things I want to include as far as information. The whole point of everything I do is to try to get as much info in there as possible to try to cut down on the number of questions people have after either listening to a podcast or watching a video or reading an article. So now I'm like second guessing myself because right now we're doing a baker's dozen, we're doing 13 species. I've went through and did like a read through just to kind of get an idea of how long this video would get and... With the, with the, just the commentaries and the spiders, not my beginning, my intro and my, you know, outro, or whatever it's going to be about 26 to 30 minutes long, which is not bad for a begin. I, I mean, honestly, this is going to be something I spent a lot of time on. It should be well produced, so it should be worth watching. And I think for a lot of people who are kind of curious to hear what, you know, what the votes were and what species came in, what play- which place, I think it'll be cool. But it's getting a little bit long. But then I started thinking like I'm starting to talk about terrestrials and arboreals. And I'm thinking, all right, my target audience for this thing is obviously going to be people that don't have tarantulas yet that might not know this stuff. So I need to define some of these things in a quick manner in the video so they know what I'm talking about, but anybody that's listened to my podcast or watched my videos, quick usually isn't something I'm good at. It's usually, all right, let me take a moment to explain what a fossorial is, blah, 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 blah. So, trying to figure out how that's going to go because now that I've got the majority, I think I have one species left to write the actual thing for, Uh, and then it's going to be come in, I'm going to do my normal intro, I think, although in this one I may not appear in the video, I may just do a voiceover and have pictures of spiders going so that I can use the script for it, because it's sometimes hard when you're staring right at the camera to remember all this stuff, and I don't like putting a script behind the camera, so we'll see how it goes, but anyway, it's going really well, I'm incredibly excited about it because it's, I, I think it's kind of an evolution of what I've been trying to do from the beginning. When I first started the whole Tom's Big Spiders thing, I the whole point was not to just use my info, but everybody else's. So I'd research and, you know, pour over Facebook groups and, you know, board posts and everything to get information to see what people were saying. And now I've kind of got an audience large enough that I can shoot out a question and I get hundreds of answers back from people that are keeping them, which is amazing. So it's no longer just me talking. It's no longer Tom says this. It's this is what people say. So one of the species I actually posted – on my Patreon page about with some of the folks there because I need footage of it and somebody (laughs) responded back I'm really surprised that one there was something along the lines of they were kind of surprised that one was on there because they have one and it was crazy and my response was, I never had this on any of my beginner species lists either. However, this isn't my beginner species list. This is people that actually keep them. These are people that offered this up, that started with this species and were successful with it. So, who the heck am I to judge that? Although I may like look at this species and go, you know what? They're kind. They can be crazy. They can be hair kickers. The hairs can be bad. And again, that's not. A, you'll see when it comes up. And I think a lot of people are going to agree with it. And I will say this is the species that I end up pinning the comment on my. YouTube video I did of Best Beginner Species, because somebody came on and said, I'm surprised you didn't include this, and he gave a a very compelling argument, so I pinned it. So, as far as I'm concerned, people that go down, it's the first comment they see. Uh, Who am I to disagree with that? So, I like the idea that it's not just me. I like the things popped up here that I wouldn't have chosen. I will be putting my two cents in, of course, but it's because it's my video and I want people to be fairly warned because I think the people that choose these had a great experience with them. People that are watching this video need to realize that might not be the same experience somebody else has with them. So anyway, just updating that because it's been something I've spent a lot of time working on and I'm very excited about it and I will be doing it as the the podcast post too I'll do the whole script as a podcast so I think that'll be kind of fun too so people that don't necessarily want to watch the videos or just my podcast audience that aren't into the videos you'll get to hear the same thing so it should be a lot of fun very excited about it so moving on today I'm going back to a couple questions a while back I put out a call for possible podcast ideas and it was during the summer when I had more time and I wasn't stressed out with work and everything but I tried I think I did two episodes in a row answering questions you know answering the questions and I think I might have done another one that was a whole episode on it I didn't necessarily call it you know listener questions or whatever but I did mean to get back to it and I feel bad sometimes because I put those calls out and I know everybody goes you know takes the time and they put up a great questions and I don't always get to them all and I always kind of feel bad because sometimes I'll go back and find like an older post I did on Facebook like oh man I never answered this one so I did want to get back to a couple of them because this week on I think with winter coming and the weather starting to get cooler, well, fall coming, not winter, but the colder weather mo- weather is starting to come. You know here, I woke up the other morning, it was 38 degrees, which I absolutely loved, but I know a lot of people are not too keen on. Now it's time to start thinking how are we going to keep our tarantulas, you know, hydrated during the winter when the furnace kicks in and the water, you know, starts evaporating very quickly. So one of the suggestions was by c. J. Walker a while back. I believe this is, might have been uh maybe July or so, and he would offer the idea of doing a, a podcast just on hydration and at the time I said it was a great idea. I still believe it's a good idea and this week several comments and really good ones like i I think what what happens just to kind of ease right into this one, and I'll use myself as an example when I was getting into keeping the moisture dependent species. And I switched finally from cocoa fiber. I started using topsoil because the cocoa fiber, just for my taste, A, it was expensive for fossorial species to get enough in there, and B, the whole settling and drying out thing. It was – I was looking for something better, and we ended up getting topsoil. And I started using topsoil after seeing a couple folks on board were using topsoil. I'm like, oh, I'll get topsoil. And I remember – filling it was an enclosure, it was the topsoil was fairly moist, and I filled the whole enclosure up, it might have been a crassipes, a P or S crassipes, whatever you're calling them these days, and I filled up for a burrowing species, I did my whole setup, and the the substrate was nice and moist, I'm like, this is fantastic, I put the spider in, the spider digs, I'm like, loving this stuff, a little heavier than the cocoa fiber, obviously, but really liking the look of it, and it held on the moisture better, well, then I remember a few months down the road, it was like wintertime. And I looked in, and I needed to add water to it. So I'm like, all right, perfect, no problem, pour water in, right? And everybody, I've used that, you know, saying, make it rain, which obviously has other connotations, which makes people giggle, but that was not intentional. I was trying to... I literally try to simulate rain when I when I water these guys. So I remember getting my thing and my little bottle with the holes in the top and I go over I'm like, let's add some water and I start squirting water in all over the place. And then just watched it puddle up and turn into mud. It was like a muddy field after a rainstorm It was just pockets of water, it wasn't sinking in, it was muddy, only the top layers were really getting, you know, moist, and it was just a disaster. And I remember looking at it like yuck, this isn't at least with the cocoa fiber, the cocoa fiber if there's no webbing on it, that stuff sinks right in, I'm like, this is an issue, so I remember trying it on a couple other enclosures, and getting the same thing, it was just puddling, it wasn't sinking down, you know, the next day I'd come in, and the top layers would be all muddy, and the bottom would be still dry, and so I remember shooting an email, or a message, I think it was a message on Arachnibor, Boards out to a guy, who would used it for a while, and I was like, hey, just a question for you, I was using some topsoil, you know, I'm liking it so far, but I'm trying to rehydrate it, do you have any, you know, do you ever have any issues with it mudding up, and he's like, no, I just pour water in, and I'm like, yeah, but what about the mud, he goes, what about the mud, and I was like, okay, this isn't going to be helpful at all, it muds up, so I go, do you add vermiculite, why would I have to add vermiculite, they don't have vermiculite in the wild, so I'm like, okay, we're done with this conversation, so I did start adding vermiculite, that was one of the things I, you know, I look back, and was like let me try adding some vermiculite mix it up and see if it works so the big tip and a lot of people do this already now is whatever you're mixing up you want to make sure if you're using topsoil make sure you add something to it that allows the water to sink in now I'm guessing there'll be people out there use topsoil and don't experience this there always seems to be people that have better luck than others I've just always had when I've tried to use straight topsoil the water doesn't Percolate through like I want it to. So I started adding vermiculite, but even then, it doesn't always sink on in. You don't always get the water where you want it, and this leads me to the uh, I had three like it was bizarre. I thought it was the same guy comment. Sometimes what'll happen is people comment something on YouTube, and I won't see it, so they'll comment the same thing again, or they'll think it went into the, like they won't see the comment post right away, so they'll post again. So I'll get three of the same comment. And I thought it was three three of the same guy, but no, it was a young lady and two guys that were asking the same exact question, which is, I know you say pour water in, but how do you keep those lower levels moist? Because as we've talked about before, the trick with adding moisture to substrate you don't want the water to puddle up top. This is the the one of the things that people need to learn when they get into keeping species that require the moist substrate is it's not about the top being moist. That's just the surface. That's going to evaporate quickly and then you're going to be left with a you know a box of dry substrate. The trick is getting it to go down to the bottom of those layers, the bottom layers of substrate so that the spider can burrow down to this, the moisture level it needs. We don't need to worry about the top. And, and I was just talking to a buddy of mine, we were talking about how people when they sub-spiders will sometimes look at what hap- you know, where they live and what the weather is like, and I said they always forget that they have burrows, and some of these burrows are incredibly deep and go down, be, you know, they hit the waterline, they hit where there's moist substrate. So, you know, you talk about P. muticus being in places where it can get very, very hot, and I had somebody argue with me the other day saying you need to keep them heated, and he puts a heat mat underneath it, and then... It was driving me nuts because I'm like, all right, you came to me for advice. I'm telling you that's a bad idea and you're arguing with me. But his thing was, oh, I read that it gets like 90-something degrees there. Or they need to be kept that hot. And I was kind of like, dude, they have up. – they've measured nine-foot burrows. They go like sometimes nine feet, you know, not right across the surface, down in the ground. They're going to hit those pockets of moist dirt. If you go out in your yard on a, on a sunny day – and I know this because I grew up on a farm. We used to dig a lot of uh, post holes. Ground can be parched absolutely parched. Grass could be dead, brown, you know, crusty, crinkling, dying. You dig down low enough, you get water, you get moist dirt, you get clay. You get That's something people tend to forget about. So when we set up our enclosures, we're not looking at those superficial weather conditions like, all right, what's going on outside? We have to take into account the burrow. So that is why when we moisten our substrate, we should be thinking about what's below not what's above. It's not about, you know, keeping everything up top moist. And that's why there is so much uh, uh, animosity toward just spraying when you hear people go, no, don't waste your time spraying. And we'll get to the spraying part in a bit because I do think it has, there's a time and a place for it. But when people just spray the enclosures, like I had somebody the other day they got a C. lividus, and they are like, yep, and I've got it all set up perfectly. It's got about six inches of dirt, and once a week, I, I take a spray bottle, and I spray the top, and I had to go, whoop, back up. Nope, that's not going to be enough. That's You're going to end up with a dead, dried-up spider there. You want to make sure that you pour the water in. So that's why I think when you first, a lot of people get in the hobby, and, and I still, I just read, a, oh my gosh, I went the other day to search up a picture of something. Oh, it was a, a Canthuscuria curia janiculata. And I pulled up a care sheet that at first I'm reading, I'm like, all right, this guy knows his stuff. This is pretty good. He does a whole thing with exotic pets and everything. But then there was like stuff about spraying. I, it might not have been the lot I bounced off read a couple of this care sheets just for giggles, but there was a lot of talk about just spraying to keep things humid, quote unquote, humid. And that's just not the way we want to go. That's why a lot of folks, when they go first get into it, they go on the boards and they go, yeah, I'm spraying it. People will throw the spray bottle away. That's not how you do it. So how do you get the water to penetrate to the bottom? And that's a trick and that's something that, you know, I have people apologize to me like, I don't think I'm doing this right. No, we all have the same issues. I think just nobody wants to talk about it. We just want to make it, you know, like, oh yeah, just dump water in and everything's okay. Here's a couple tricks. And again, it's, there's nothing amazing here. There's nothing like, I would like to pretend like, oh, here you go, some sage advice. No, it's just... Stuff I've kind of learned, little tricks I've learned as I've tried to figure out how to get that water to get down to the bottom one right off the bat. If you're using sterilite containers, they're flexible. They can flex. So you can actually pull the sides apart a little bit. Don't pull them too much because you don't want to break it. But what you can do is when you go to add the water, you pull the sides out a little bit so it creates a little pocket of air between the substrate and the side of the enclosure and you can pour water so that it goes down that area. So what will happen is the water will hit the edges of that dirt, will trickle all the way down. You can usually get it down to the bottom. Now if you do what I like to do and put a layer of vermiculite down in the bottom of any moisture dependent species enclosure before you start stacking the substrate on top of it that stuff absorbs it like a sponge so it'll it'll basically go through the water the the dirt is going to be a bit more tightly packed a bit more dense so it's not going to even with the vermiculite in it than the vermiculite layer on the bottom. So that allows that to kind of go on through and it spreads out across the bottom and you get a nice spread of water in that area. With uh, glass enclosures, same general principle, it can be a little more time consuming, but one thing you can do right off the bat is I use the back of a longer paintbrush and I use the paintbrush to stick basically little grooves down the side between. So I, I carefully put the paintbrush handle down the side between the dirt and between the glass or sometimes like acrylics another one that obviously you don't want to go flexing your acrylic too much and you can make some grooves down there and then when you go to pour the water in tilt the enclosure toward that side, pour the water, and wait for it to go down through. You should see it. It'll trickle down through a lot faster that way. And then do that a couple times. And if you have another corner, you know, you want to do it on the other side, do it on the other side. And what will happen is that allows the water to get down to those lower levels, and the top level will dry up a bit. Now, I had somebody contact me via, I believe it was YouTube, with a message about how do you do it when they're, you know, it seems to me like you want to make sure that their den area is the one that's moist. But I have a hard time pouring water in there without flooding their den. Well, first and foremost, don't pour water into the actual mouth of the den. Although, I caveat to that, I will sometimes trickle a little bit down in there, but that's not the place you want to, that's not the avenue you want to take in order to moisten down the substrate. Because what you're going to do is obviously flood the deck, the den. A lot of them create those web socks in there to protect their den, so it makes them waterproof. And when you pour water directly down, it's like using that flood method that people use to get their tarantulas out where you pour water down the den, either you pour it quickly or you pour it slowly. I'm I'm never doing it again, so it doesn't matter. But for people that use it and like it, you can kind of flood and they'll come out to get away from the water. Well, that's because you're flooding their den. What's going on here? I'm getting flooded. They're going to come out to get away from the water and you can usually snatch them up. So that's not what you want to do. However, what you can do is a lot of times, like I'll use my H. gigas, for example, they have these big dens underneath, but each corner has a lot of dirt in it that's filled up that's you know filled corners that are filled up with dirt and what I do is aim the water down those corners so I soak that substrate around the den without flooding the den the other thing you can do is if you have a den if you know where the spider's den is say the den is at the back of the enclosure and it takes up the whole back of the enclosure, you can add water to the sides in front of it. So, for example, say I have a, let's just go 8 inches by 12 inch long enclosure, and the tarantula's den is in those back, you know, four to the, across the back 4 inches deep, you can easily add water on either side, you know, the, the extra 8 inches on either side toward the front of the enclosure without flooding the enclosure itself. You don't want to go, all right, the den is, takes up the back, you know, four by eight inches of this enclosure, so I'm going to pour all the water in there. No, there's if, if they dug their den, it's probably right down to the glass or plastic, which means if you pour water in, you are going to flood the den. That's going to cause stress. Eventually, it will seep into the substrate surrounding it. So if you do it by accident, no, they aren't going to drown. They will usually climb up a little bit to get away from it, and eventually that water is going to seep into the surrounding substrate. However, what you're going to have is really saturated substrate right around the spider and that's not ideal at all that's where you start getting fungus and stuff like that so try to locate where the burrow is and add water accordingly it's very easy to even a larger enclosure and i've done this i just did this with the kilobrocky species electric blue that I rehoused, I had to add some more moisture to the enclosure, so I I strategically tilted the enclosure up. So I knew its den was in the back. I was adding water more to the front end. You can tilt it to the side, wherever it may need to be. It may take a little more time. It's a little more than just you know. A lot of times you see people just go, and they spray all the water all over the place and they're done. I'm a little more strategic about. It. I'm like spiders here. I want the lower levels moist, I'm going to hit those corners, those edges, I'm going to make my grooves with the paintbrush handle, if needed, sometimes you don't even need it, and I'm going to try to strategically make sure the water goes into the substrate close to the burrow, but doesn't flood the burrow. So those are valid points, and I think things that people don't want to ask because they feel stupid, I know when I first reached out about the, you know my topsoil mudding up, I kind of felt like an idiot, like, this is probably obvious, but what do you do to avoid the mud, and I think a lot of people experience the same thing, where they read one of, you know, even one of my, they see one of my videos, or they read one of my articles, and they go, okay, it's great, I pour water in, but it's puddling up on top, so great question, that's the best trick I can give it, use the sterilites, they flex, any flexible container, They're easy to flex the what of those, the mainstay canisters you get, you can get the two quart or the one gallon side, a size at Walmart. A lot of people use them. They're very popular. I've used them for a long time. Those are also kind of flexible. So if you squeeze them a little bit, you can kind of puff the dirt up on the sides and you pour the water out, Goes straight down to the bottom. Again, just watch those dents. Now, the other big one that we get quite a bit as far as hydration is the slings. People freak out, and I've done the same thing before, and I've actually done the, what I'm about to talk about, but you get the sling. You're told to keep the sling moist. You want the lower levels moist, not the top levels. Again, the spraying only keeps those top levels moist, and that evaporates very quickly, especially if your enclosure is adequately ventilated, and that should be mentioned. If, you, if you've poked enough holes in there, it's, you spray the surface down, it isn't going to stay for very long. So your, your remaining alternative is to do what we do with the larger enclosures, which is to try to pour water in, which if you've got your spider in a little dram bottle, which is a little bit of substrate, that could get out of hand very quickly. So I've done this before. You get the little enclosure, a little bottle. You take a little bit of, you know, I, I got a little bottle of water and I try to carefully pour some water down the edge. Next thing you know, it I flood the entire burrow, the little sling shooting out because it thinks it just got a, you know, torrential downpour and its burrow is flooding and you have a mess. And now you got to try to pour out the extra water or you rehouse it because it's too moist. And this is where syringes and pipettes are your friend and come into play. And I picked some of these up a few years back. Not that I had syringes and I broke one of my syringes. So I was looking for something. Similar, and I got the pipettes, and I love them because what you can do with a pipette is very carefully guide where you want the water to go and how much water you want to go in. That's your solution right there. So if you have, so if you're keeping a bunch of slings, winter's coming, hop on Amazon. Unfortunately, I don't think you can. You can buy them usually in packs of like I got mine. I think it was in a pack of fifty, and I honestly don't need fifty of the things. Might even been a hundred, but they were really cheap. You always have them on hand. They're very useful. And what you do is you basically fill the the pipette with water locate where the slings burrow is. That's important. Don't just go in there blind. Try to figure out. And usually if you're keeping them in like, you know, the small 2.5 ounce deli cups or 2.2 ounce deli cups or 5.5 ounce deli cups or the little dram bottles, you can usually locate that burrow and try to add the water around the substrate, around the burrow, not into the burrow itself. Do not flood the burrow. And these allow a lot more control, a lot more accuracy as far as where the water is going to go as opposed to pouring it in I love them so those I would definitely encourage anybody that has slings to pick some of these up I know some people use them for filling up regular water dishes and whatnot they work great and it should solve your problem of flooding those sling burrows because I think we've all been there where you're, you're you know you either try to spray it down and soak the crud out of it because you're hoping it'll work or what ends up happening is you try to pour water in and then will flood the whole thing so to avoid that, pipettes, fantastic. I can probably put a link to, you know, in this podcast description, I'll put a link to them. I don't know how many people actually go to the, the main site and see it, or if it shows, it should show up, I believe, if it posts on iTunes or whatnot, the link. But if the link is there and people want to go check them out, they can get them. They're really cheap, great to have on hand, and highly encourage people to get them. So that's pretty much it as far as, it's being strategic where you add the water. Obviously, water, if you pour it right on the dirt, it's going to mud up, but if you get it in that path of least resistance where there's a seam between the substrate and and the side of the enclosure you can usually get it to go down through and control it a little bit better it may take you a little more time I know a lot of a lot of this picture just we see it on videos and stuff and I do it sometimes I'm guilty of it where I'll just quickly squirt stuff with water and not show that you know later on I come back and kind of hit the edges to make sure it goes down deep so I can definitely appreciate how that can be confusing to somebody who you know watches the video or reads in the article just pour some water and tries it themselves and ends up with just a big mud puddle on top of their substrate and two days later with dry substrate so those are a couple tricks that work very very well obviously the stuff you add to this and again besides vermiculite people will take sphagnum moss and cut it up and put it in there i've heard of people putting cork bark in you break up the cork bark into little pieces and again granted cork bark can be a little expensive but a lot of people if you're using a lot of it you have little pieces around they cut it up and put it in there because it kind of creates little pockets and allows the water to trickle on down through i'm sure people will have other things adding sin now one of the things that i was told before is that adding fine sand helps the filtration a great deal i personally... It didn't work for me. I went through a stage where I was adding fine sand to a lot of my enclosures because supposedly the sand allows, again, kind of acts like the vermiculate and it allows the water to sink down through. It, it, I, I couldn't notice a huge difference, but there are people that swear by it. So I could have been doing something wrong, quite frankly. I was mixing it up. I got the really fine stuff because first I was using like the white playground sand and that wasn't working. So he's like, no, you got to get the real fine stuff. I put the real fine stuff in. And usually what I end up finding is a lot of it would settle down to the bottom because it's heavier than the dirt around it. So it would kind of sink down and you get pockets of sand maybe that's how it works the pockets take it i don't know but it didn't work as well for me but please feel free to chime in on some of this stuff you know people that have techniques that work really well that's just what i use it works great for me and i haven't had any problems i just went through last night and ended up it was the uh, p i had to add some water to my kilobrockies guangzian's hers was starting to dry i was seeing that band and that's the other thing as far as keeping them moist, I shouldn't, I can't forget to mention this part, you should be able to, if you have a clear or somewhat clear or even opaque, even the the Sterilite enclosures, this shouldn't be a problem with, you can usually see the band around the bottom that actually uh, indicates the moisture substrate. So as that band starts to shrink, that's when you start worrying about re-adding water. So I'll have a lot of people go, how do you know when to moisten it down? Or I'll have people go, yeah, I came in the other day and my see lividus I noticed the top of the dirt was all dry so I had to add a lot of water it's like whoa whoa whoa! if the bottom's wet though you don't have to worry about that so you want to make sure that you're watching that band when it gets down to a point where it's starting to get kind of low like you're down to a few inches or two inches or so it's definitely time to add some more water to it if there's a good solid you know four five six inches of you know deep dark substrate that's obviously nice and moist then you don't have to worry about it. you can watch that line that makes it very easy that's what I do I drag for example, I went to feed my crass bees the other night. I dragged around out on the table. I looked at the side. I'm like, oop, that band's down to about an inch and a half or so. Time to add some water. So I went through and did exactly what I just told you guys. Squirted water in the sides, the corners of the enclosure behind her burrow, around the sides of the burrow to allow it to sink on in and make sure that substrate was nice and moist. When I came back the next morning, it had kind of evened out. You could see that band had grown quite a bit. So that's something you could do is watch the band level. I even talked to somebody that was obsessive about it where what they would do is they'd moisten the substrate and they'd take a little piece of tape and mark the corner where it was nice and dark before and they'd watch it when it got below a certain point in that corner that showed that the substrate was drying out there then they would add more and fill it right back up the corner again which is a cool way of doing it I just kind of eyeball it I mean I could tell if, if if you got a four inch spider it's dug a burrow down to the bottom you have six inches of substrates dug a burrow down to the bottom and those bottom two inches are moist that's still probably enough to keep it nice and moist and then of course always include a water dish but i've as i've informed people before if you see your moisture dependent species hanging over the water dish there's likely a problem it's it's most likely too dry and i've, I've gotten emails before where people have asked have you seen anything like this before my h gigas is just hovering over the water dish and then like i go can i get a a photo of the side of the enclosure and you see the dirt is dry. It's like, well, your problem is the unfortunately the substrate has dried out and it's looking for moisture, so it's hanging around that. That's not ideal. You want to make sure you moisten that substrate up pretty quick. So that's another thing. Always keep those water dishes in there. Now, spraying. I know spraying is one of those things that, and again, it's like the... (laughs) For some of us, it's like a dirty little secret because you don't want to say you do it because then people are going to be like, "Whoa, you still spray? That's useless." Well, it's not useless. It does have its it does have its perks. It does have its usefulness in certain situations. I will tell you, when I started the bioactive enclosures, I have one of those pump ones, the air ones, where you basically pump it up full of air and it's you know compresses the air and then you spray it and you get a nice mist all over everything. I love that thing for simulating like a, a rain shower on some of these because what happens with the bioactives is you also have to make sure that your cleaner insects don't dry out so you can't really let the entire surface dry out or else you're going to lose your cleaner insects sometimes they, they will hide underneath like the leaf litter and under like I have some of the pods in there they hide under those around the water dish. There are places they will congregate but it, it'll, it'll kind of kill some of them off if you let it get too dry so what I like to do is periodically go through with the mister and mist it and I found that my arboreals especially my pisoletheria species Vicularia uh, some of the some of ps, they will go out and drink from the glass sometimes so it just gives them an alternative so if before bed at night you hit a couple of the enclosures with the spraying it's not going to be enough to provide adequate moisture for moisture dependent species that needs to be made very clear you really have to soak the snot out of the substrate with with spraying or misting to have it have any impact whatsoever besides just a cursory spike in the relative humidity inside that enclosure which isn't what we're really worried about So no, that isn't really, it's not an adequate way to keep larger enclosures hydrated and keep that moisture up for the moisture loving species. However, they will drink off the side. It's a nice way to simulate a little rain shower. I've seen ones come out and this is something that, you know, again, you watch what your spiders do and that should inform how your keeping goes. I remember spraying a bunch of enclosures down. I went to bed. I came back out, came back down because I forgot something, flipped on the light and a bunch of my arboreals were out drinking off the glass and seeming to enjoy the rain shower. So there are some perks. So it's not going to be enough, I think, again, to make it clear, not enough to really keep them hydrated, I don't think, but I do use it when I do feeding. Sometimes I'll go in, like I fed my piece of Lotheria the other night, filled the water dish, moistened a corner of the substrate and then I took the sprayer and just kind of sprayed off some of the foliage and the side of the enclosure a bit to give them a little bit of, you know, they want to come out and drink. And my pure Gallus came out and drank off that. I've seen her drink out of the water dish as well, but it gives them another place to drink from. So I'm not totally against spraying. I just don't think it's the correct way to keep them hydrated. It's a tool, another tool, something you could use to give them another avenue to drink from or whatever, but not as your main source as far as keeping the substrate moist as far as smaller specimens like slings though it can be you know i, I i'll admit it like every once in a while i get out i do have the spray i have that spray bottle that you pump up and you know you get the, the compressed air going and i also have just a regular standard spray bottle and i sometimes will go in like when i feed my really my Larger slings are in those, I think they're like six by four and a half inch containers or so. L- larger sling containers, I'll use them to moisten down a quarter and some substrate on, but again, it, you get the, you achieve the same result by, a better result by pouring some water in and making it rain, but with smaller enclosures, sometimes it's easier to Control how much water goes in, kind of like we were talking earlier about flooding the dram bottles easily if you try to pour water in for some of the smaller ones you go to make it rain and next thing you know' you 've severely soaked down the substrate, so they can work for that so I am not to- i am not anti spray bottle I just use them as kind of a supplement to other things that i 'm doing. I do find they have you know their uses and the fact that we again it comes back down to there aren 't a lot of the absolutes in the hobby for to tell people. You know, these are absolutely useless. I disagree. I, I think they definitely have their uses. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there right now. I'm hoping there's a lot of folks out there right now listening to this. Like, yeah, I use one too. I, I adequately moisten the substrate, but sometimes they, they like a little drink off the side. My avicularis and my Versicolor especially. Like Versicolor, if I spray down the side, she always goes and starts drinking right off the glass. So that's something to note that right there, you're giving your spider an alternative of where it can drink. So that's, I mean, that's probably all I've got as far as hydration. It's not a terribly difficult thing to figure out. And I don't think it's, you know, I, again, depending on the substrates you use, it can be a little more challenging. I found that Pete, want, Pete holds moisture beautifully, but it can be a little bit more difficult to hydrate. I spoke to somebody on YouTube and I tried to find the comment earlier and I can't find it right now. But what he does, which was interesting, and I'm still not quite sure how this works, but he uses peat and once a month he takes the containers the you know the the spider containers and he submerges the entire enclosure much of the enclosure in a larger tank of water to allow the water to sink into that peat and he said it basically soaks down in the bottom layers and then he doesn't have to do it for a while i didn't get he he didn't get back to me with the details of it It was an interesting idea because i have had i've used peat in the past i still use peat sometimes i always mix it heavily with vermiculite because i found that peat well a it's incredibly dusty if anybody's seen one of my latest videos we were using BioDude substrate which i believe the base of it is peat and it would just look like a million ghost orbs going around as i was doing this enclosure because it's it's incredibly dusty it's one of those ones that you blow your nose an hour later and you're like, oh dear Lord. So it, it, it's, I find that rehydrating. It can be tricky because it doesn't, it'll hold water very, very well. Moist peat, it locks out of that water. However, it can be tough. To, I found it can be tough to rehydrate and I'm hoping, you know, again, people chime in if you've got, you know, tips or if you don't find that, but I found it could be a little tough. So this was a neat idea. You submerge it, you allow the water to come in, soak it up. I, I'm, I'm still not quite sure how he pulls it off because I would assume the spider is still in the enclosure when you do this. And then I would assume that in order to get the water to go into the actual enclosure, it would have to be through the vent holes, which would mean that it was pouring in the top, which would, I don't know. He didn't get back to me. It was, uh, hopefully I'll get more information on that because it, it sounded interesting. And, and again, I'm not questioning that it works for him. I was just trying to understand the logistics of it, how exactly it works. But you know, whatever works for you. These are tricks that work for me. I've used them for a while. I have, you know, again, I started keeping moisture-dependent species many years ago and haven't had much of an issue with keeping them hydrated once I figured out a system, once I figured out how it works. That vermiculite layer on the bottom works very well for me. The only issue I ever have is eventually they will dig all the way down through that vermiculite, layer and bring some of that up but that doesn't hurt anything at all it's the only issue i've ever found and it still will have that vermiculite layer around the burrow which will attract some of that water so hopefully that helps some of you guys out again i know we always make it sound so simple just pour water make it rain i'm guilty of it myself and it's it is a little more to it than that you got to be a little more strategic into where you know what where you put your water how you put your water in there you know with slings it's you can't really just dump it on in you have to be a little more careful i think that's where the pipettes help a lot So hopefully that will help some folks as far as the hydration part. Again, it's not rocket science. I don't want it to look like I'm, you know, over here thinking, yeah, check this out. This is amazing. No, it's just stuff that I've, you know, little things that I've fought through myself and tried to figure out for myself. And, you know, somebody out there might have an even better solution to some of this stuff. Uh, personally, once I got the hang of it, it hasn't been an issue. And I think everybody, it's its kind of like rehousings. Once you get a system down, it becomes easy. It becomes commonplace. You're, you're less stressed out about, it. because I do think for those of us who make that transition into moisture dependent species, th- that's a huge cause of anxiety when you're trying to figure out how do I know when to add water? How do I know where to add water? How do I add water? Those start weighing on you and you start second-guessing things, and I think what unfortunately happens sometimes is that people go overboard with what they're trying to do. They overhydrate, they create these messes, and then you have the swampy conditions, the undesirable fungi and things popping up, and we end up sometimes overdoing it, and where we're trying to keep conditions good for our animal, we make conditions dangerous for our animal. So that's, I think, something we all go through and something we all need to think about, and Again, don't ever, anybody that has questions, feel free to ask or anybody that has things, you know, tips, feel free to lay them, you know, in the comment section on Facebook because I do want to hear from you guys. I do get a lot of things from folks I talk to. Sometimes I do something for years and I have four years and think it's great. And then I talk to somebody else who does something different and realize, nope, there's another way to do it and it's better. So those are just some things I do. It works for me and feel free to let me know what you guys do and that works for you. All right, so moving on, I can hear some talking behind me. My neighbors are out in their yard. That's usually the precursor for some chainsawing and some wood splitting. So I'm guessing that my quality time to do podcasting is about to come to an abrupt end. So what we'll do is we'll finish this one up with a little commentary on – as as I've obviously talked about my last three or four podcasts – I'm doing that beginner species list and one of the things I put, one of the caveats I put up there are the stipulations is that I didn't want any old world species. I wasn't getting into it. Uh, lately, I've been getting a lot not a lot of pushback, but pushback on videos because I did one on H. pulchrapes and said that it's not a beginner species and a couple people took exception to that. And I covered this in an earlier podcast, but it keeps popping up, it keeps bubbling up and it drives me nuts because I think I explained myself, I thought I acquitted myself well by saying that I won't recommend them because of the fact that I'm thinking of the typical beginner who's going to be scared of even just a new world that might be a little skittish. I've had people tell me they're, I literally just got a message perfect example, a message on YouTube, somebody saying, I bought a B. albopilosum, I'm terrified of her because she's fast, can you help me, right there, that's a beginner, that's somebody who's not ready for an old world tarantula, and then we talked about the kids part, so I've gone through this, I won't rehash that, but what came out of it was somebody went on a video I did with, it was the OBT, the P. murinus, and said, I love this species, I hate when people say they shouldn't be beginner species or I hate that when people say beginners shouldn't have them and like a ding dong I engaged and the person's like these are great beginner species they're hardy they're easy to keep and so I tried to explain myself I was like listen I just had somebody say they were scared of their bialbo, which usually are the top like one of the most top recommended beginner species out there most of them are quite docile I can't recommend that to people, and I always explain as well that if somebody emails me and says, listen, I'm a beginner, but I'm hell-bent on getting one of these. I'll go, all right. And then I give them the information they need. Like, I'm not I'm not the police for this. And some people, I've, I've mentioned before, I have friends that started off in some of their first tarantulas were OBTs, and they were fine. I'm going to be posting some pictures of mine up, or probably one picture up, on Instagram But my girl. She is a sweetheart. So obviously, there are nicer specimens out there. My girl, I opened up the other night, uh, Billy's sitting there, and she knows, like, I don't get to see this one very much. Uh, I, I get glimpses of her. I have her container right when I get dressed in the morning. I can see her burrow and I usually see her in there, but she was out on the surface. She never comes out on the surface. So I dragged it out into my table. I opened up the thing, and do you think I got a threat pose? No. She went to the stress pose. I felt terribly for her. Like, she looked adorable. I called Billy over. I'm like, look, at this is the, you know, the vicious OBT. Check this out. And she's like, oh, my God, we're looking at her. I I snapped some pictures, and then I tossed in a roach. My God, she moved that thing, grabbed that roach about three inches away. It sprung back to where she was in a blink of an eye. But then just calmly did her happy dance and started eating. So I tossed her another roach. She ate some more. So I got some video of her, some pictures. She was calm. I got pretty close to her with the camera. She didn't care. She was happy. But that's not all the species. That's not, that, that's not necessarily representative of their temperaments. So I think what happens, again, is some people get these guys and they're like, mine was no problem at all. I had no problem. Well, that was you that could be a combination of you just having those skills. I I do think and I've mentioned before that having been around animals and raised animals my whole life and I again on the farm I was the one that used to tame down the feral you know we had feral cats I would tame them down I got good at watching body language and stuff and I think that did help me moving into the hobby that I'm able to kind of I just think it's something I practice over the years without thinking about, like I'm, I'm able to recognize things that maybe somebody that hasn't done it for a while might not see. And maybe that guy's got that. I, I don't know, you know, but I, I think we we sometimes get caught up in the fact that we did it, so therefore you know, like when somebody says a beginner shouldn't have the species, people take offense to that. Like, who the heck are you going to tell me what I can have? Is I've already done this. Well, that's you. Recognize people are different. So again, in private, when people contact me, I just had somebody say they only kept a couple species and they wanted to get a pivotata sling. I said, you're aware of the venom? Yep. Okay. You're aware that they can be fast. Yep. All right. And you're definitely going to get one? Yep. All right. Well, here's what I would say. And told them to watch some of the, you know, like, I normally don't sell my stuff. I hate going like, hey, well, watch this video of mine. That's not what I'm about. But, you know, I do these videos to show people stuff. So I said, watch these videos. You can see how they move, get an idea for it, what to look for if they both I give them the whole thing, happy and be on their way. And I will tell you, it's happened quite a bit over the years, and I haven't had, I've yet had anybody come back to me and go, man, you, you allowed me to get this thing, and it bit me, and it tore up my house, or it bit my kids, or it bit my dogs, or whatever. Usually it's, hey, Tom, I now have 50 species, I've never had any problems. So I think people just need to understand that although I am not ever going, it'll never happen. I mean, I've, there's been some things I've changed, in the ho- the things that, you know, I've changed my opinion on the hobby over the years. I will never change my opinion on recommending Old World's to people just getting in the hobby. It's not anything I do. Again, I've explained it ad ad nauseum. Tom Moran goes out there and says, you know what? OBT's, they aren't bad. People are going to pick them up and I'm sorry, there's going to be escapes. There's going to be some people getting hurt. Do I think that no beginners can keep these? No, that's ridiculous. Obviously, beginners keep them. I actually got an OBT Well, it was a sling, but rather early on when I was getting deep into the hobby and didn't have any problems with it. So obviously people can keep them, but when you're putting together a beginner list, generally speaking, who's looking for beginner species? They're people that haven't kept tarantulas before. So you want to make sure that you target it to that audience, and you don't want to say things in the video like, well, if you're feeling really good about yourself, you can get an OBT, or if you really think you have the skills, you can get an OBT. No, you don't want to introduce confusion. They may go out, they may, you know, see videos on OBT. They may see videos on P. slitheria species or one of the species that aren't normally recommended as beginners. And they may like them, like the look some, they may say, you know what, I think I can do that. Some people that come from keeping other exotics tend to transition. I know that a lot of folks will sit there and say that, you know, keeping snakes and other lizards and stuff doesn't help you. I I, I really think it does, especially the hands-off aspect and the fact that your pet may attack you. I think that's something that's, you know, carries over very well. But they may go out and be perfectly fine with one. That's totally cool. I, I think that's honestly got true. Some people are going to pick them up and have no problem. But I think the majority of people aren't ready for those or need to work up to them and or just figure out where they're at themselves. It's not something I can do. So here, from now on, you know, we won't cover this again. But that's my take on it. The OBT is a funny one because I've told people before when I first got into the hobby, like big time when I was starting to look at like all these different species that were available – and one of the top searches for best beginner tarantulas was a an article that listed the OBT as one of the best beginner species. I believe the guy's quote was something along the lines of, you can keep these things on glass and they'll thrive. And I remember looking at this orange spider going, yep, I'm getting that one. And then luckily I did more research and every single other thing I read said, no, no, no way, not good. Most of them would concede that they're very easy to care for because they're an arid species and they, you know, they... Don't need a lot of TLC, but the potential attitudes, defensiveness, speed, big issue. So I didn't end up getting one right off the bat. But that, you know, that mentality, I get where it's coming from, but I also think that having, and again, I have that unique perspective where I get to talk to a lot of people that are just getting into the hobby. I don't think these guys see what level people are coming in at. and and sometimes it's a low level, it's, they've just learned, they just got fascinated with the idea of keeping a pet, a giant pet spider, and they don't know very much yet, so they, those people have to ease into it, somebody that's been in different hobbies, knows a bit about exotics, maybe had one in the past, yeah, probably, no problem, but I'm not going to publicly put those on beginner's list, so anyway, there might be a little nod to that, a little joke to that when I do my beginner species one, because the OBT did pop up, I think, three different votes it got for best beginner species, one, I'm pretty sure the guy was, Trying to be funny, and it was—I kind of giggled his write-up was funny for it. But the other two, they were like legitimate, like the best ones. The obt, like oh come on! I said no, old worlds. Why waste my time? But uh, we'll mention it. But anyway, just wanted—it just cracks me up sometimes because I—I I think it's that. I can do it so anybody can do it mentality. And I think that can be dangerous at times because, you know, there are things that I can do that I think other people might struggle with. I've seen people do things that I know I would struggle with. It's recognizing where you're coming in, what your own personal ability is, recognizing, you know, do you feel scared thinking about these? I think that's a big part of it. But to just say OBT would be a great beginner species, kind of a silly notion, in my opinion. And again, just my opinion, but. That's where I come from on these. So I'm, I'm sure more of these will come up, but I just like sharing them because it's kind of funny. Where it's, I, I was literally editing the beginner species video, and I'll just call it out. There's a little joke about the OBT making the list, and it's it's a joke, but I did it because I had, you know, three people do it. And then I get this individual saying, which I hope he comes back because it, it could turn into a, a better discussion. I, I, I love getting into a discussion over. it, I love explaining myself because I think sometimes people get the impression I'm telling you, no, you're not allowed to get this. I think that might be part of why people bristle, where they see it as not me offering what I think would be good species to start with, or doing a video on an old world and saying, I think most beginners would find this overwhelming. They see it more as me telling people what they can and cannot have. It's nothing to do with that. It's just using my experience and experience that I've you know, garnered from talking to other people that have gone through some of this stuff to be able to go, I'm in my opinion, this would not make a good beginner species. So anyway, just come back to that. I thought it'd be a fun one. We'll probably end it there because I can hear my neighbor getting loud outside. And I really don't want to, you know, try to figure out if my software will actually be able to delete the sound of that wood splitter going on outside. So we're not even going to try it. So that will do it for this one. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, um, as always, thanks so much for listening. The the numbers are continuing to grow. And I, I just keep mentioning it because... If anybody's followed this with me, and I know I've talked to people through comment sections and everything, I'm absolutely floored with the response the podcast gets. And I do... Every week, I think we had three this week, I have people go, please keep doing the podcast because I think, I know earlier on, I kind of hinted that we'd see how it goes. It's not going anywhere. I absolutely love this. I actually look forward to it now. It's fun. I feel like I'm having a conversation about tarantulas, even though nobody's talking to me on the other side. And even though sometimes I can see my kids looking at me like, dad, will you hurry the heck up so I can come down and get my breakfast? Yep, I see you. So we're going to cut it here. As always, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you guys all next time.